Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, October 26, 2010, and our guest is Diane Ravitch. And Diane, I'm so glad to have you here. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, we really appreciate your coming, uh, and especially um, being willing to talk to us tonight, late at night for some, and. Uh, in the evening, but it does make it easier for teachers. Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now part of Blackboard, called Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is Learn Central. It's a free social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come and take advantage of those free resources. This month, we have a special sponsor, Microsoft Bing and Redo at bing.com redo. And thanks to them for saving me in terms of book buying funds. Coming up in November, this is just turning out to be a hoot, the Global Education Conference, five days, uh, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, all for free. We should have over 350 sessions that week. If you like looking at fun tech solutions, we used Google Calendar to allow the speakers to schedule themselves. And also, you can look at all of the events in your own time zone in a Google Calendar. So go to globaleducationconference.com. We have about 170 of the sessions up so far. Um, remaining will go up in the next uh, five to 10 days. Lots of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow, or not tomorrow, sorry, Thursday, Clarence Fisher comes on. Next week, Vicky Belli is the director of the movie Race to Nowhere. I'm not getting nearly the publicity as Waiting for Superman, but also a very interesting movie on education. Uh, Steve Farr from Teach for America will come on. That should be fascinating. Uh, we have Global EdCon up there. Uh, you can see others from our Elevating the Education discussion, thanks to Edutopia. Uh, will Richardson's going to come back. He's been on before. Julie Young's coming again. Uh, Deborah Meyer's coming, Alfie Cohen. Um, uh, much thanks to that uh, particular event for reigniting the interest. It should be a lot of fun. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded up at futureofeducation.com. Uh, yesterday, Jim Burke talked about his English companion named 22,000 English teachers in the social network talking to each other. It's really, really fascinating. Um, if you're following social networking, another sort of mild, interesting milestone is that Classroom 2.0 is about to hit 50,000 members. Uh, boy, Connie, we've sure come a long way, haven't we? Anyway, lots of really fun sessions that are recorded and up there, and we hope that you'll take advantage of those as resources. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Uh, we hope you will participate by uh, clapping or smiling. There are icons at the bottom of your participant window that you can use. There's a larger hand with a green up arrow, and that's how you raise your hand to let us know you want to ask a question when we get to Q&A. If you do want to ask a question that way using the microphone, please do go up to Tools, Audio, and Run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working. You are, of course, welcome to put questions just in the chat. Um, and if we miss a question that you ask during the session, be sure to repost it. That's just fine. Uh, I find it much easier to watch the screen if I go up to View Layouts, go to the menu View Layouts, and click on the Wide Layout. And it makes it easier to follow the chat. Um, you can leave a chat message for another individual in the session uh, using that drop-down box that's in the bottom of the chat area. But do be aware that Diane and I will see all of those messages as moderators. Okay, and this is always fun. You now get to know, tell us where you're participating from. You can do so by clicking on the left of the map. Look for a wand with a red star. Click on that, and then click on the map. We heard some. We saw some weather reports in the chat before the session started. Please feel free to post those again, or to post uh, what the, the time, temperature, weather are like for you. Uh, New Zealand, China, Japan. Uh, yes. Where is that? Uh, in Philippines, maybe Guam. Guam. Oh, terrific. As always, wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, we are really glad that you have joined us. Pennsylvania, not glamorous, oh, how funny. Nor is Sacramento, California. But you'll love where you are, no matter what, I'm sure. So Diane, welcome. Really fun to have you here. 
Hi, Steve. Uh, I, I love this kind of session because the travel is very wearying. And uh, I did a video conference the other night with uh, people in Seattle. It was great. Uh, and I'm going to do one in, in Chicago in a couple of weeks. And I think the technology is just uh, sensational. Well, I'm glad you like it. I think it has some things that really recommend it. Like I love what takes place in the chat. I do think it ends up being somewhat sort of oftentimes uh, traditional um, material dispensing forum. Um, but there's a lot of value in that, and we can make it as interactive as, as you would like tonight. Um, I, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the uh, Elevate Ed discussion that we had a few weeks back. Um, and and uh, Edutopia is on the line. Elaine is here. And um, we had eight different guests talk about education that night. And it's sort of as a response to Education Nation, maybe a little, and to uh, Waiting for Superman. Um, after that event, reflecting on it, did you feel like that was of value, or were we just sort of shouting into the wind? Frankly, I thought it was much too fast-paced. Uh, each person who spoke got 15 minutes, and uh, it was Q&A. And it was really just a, a skimming the surface. There, there are so many big issues in education today. And my, my feeling is that this kind of conversation with each of the people you had on that night uh, is going to turn out to be uh, more valuable because you have a chance to think and to maybe reflect and reconsider and say things in a different way. So I think I felt a, a little bit the same, and, and, and again, again, appreciation for you for coming on and, and doing a little bit deeper digging. There's Waiting for Superman, there's Race to Nowhere, there's Education Nation. Are, are we seeing a trend toward discussing education uh, that you feel is positive? Well, actually, I think what's going on now is that there are, um, I've described it as being all the troops are on one side and the generals on the other. Uh, the troops being the teachers and parents and the kids, and the generals being uh, the guys with a lot of money and power. I don't think that waiting for Superman is a positive contribution to the discussion because it's such a fundamentally dishonest movie. Uh, I have a, a review of Waiting for Superman in the current issue of the New York Review of Books. It's available. You can Google it. It's NewYorkBooks.com. Uh, there's so much that's wrong with it, and I, I don't want to get into detail here, but just the fundamental issue where he distorts is to say that achievement is so terribly, terribly low. And he is misstating the NAEP data uh, because he says 70% uh, of kids in eighth grade are below grade level using NAEP data. And uh, NAEP doesn't test grade levels. Uh, and it's actually 25% that are below basic, uh, many of those kids being English language learners, uh, kids with disabilities. It's a fundamentally dishonest movie. And um, so I think it's Although I know he goes around apologizing and saying he doesn't, he didn't mean that. Uh, it's not an honest movie. So uh, um, I, I went with my wife and two of our uh, daughters uh, to watch the movie, and I, I thought they got some things interestingly right. And if I, I, I tried to take notes in the dark, but one of the most intriguing lines for me was that it was in the movie which actually came from Bill Gates, and they quote him as saying, "When you get the culture right." And I thought it almost sort of flew in the face of everything else they were saying. Uh, well, I think that um, you know it's it's true. It's when you get the culture right, schools function much better. But what's happening right now is that there is this uh, pounding on on public school teachers and de really demonizing public education. The movie itself presented uh, public education as a failing enterprise, which it's not. Uh, I mean, there are obviously pockets of, of failure, but the public education has served this country well for 150 years. I hope it continues to. Uh, but public school teachers are just enormously demoralized. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing, almost the only thing I've been doing since last March, is going out and speaking and meeting teachers, talking to them. And what I hear everywhere across the country is they're just tired of being told how terrible they are and how, how teachers need to be fired. And that was one of the, again, absurd things in Waiting for Superman is that they quote Eric Hanushek saying that if we can fire 5 to 10% of our teachers every year, uh, we'll soon rise to the top. Well, I don't know how that works. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and we have right now a big problem with 50% of teachers leaving uh, within five years of starting teaching. And the attrition rates are enormous. So yeah, of course we need to get rid of bad teachers, but that's the job of administrators. That's, the, that's what they're supposed to be doing. 
Well, I thought that was particularly interesting because it felt as though the conclusions reached in the movie, uh, there was no logical progression to them, meaning uh, the four points of how schools succeed. I didn't actually see them as being uh, proven in the film. So you know, I thought there was you know, some really good sort of sense of people's frustration and, the, and the, the pain of people who weren't getting to good schools. But because they didn't profile many of the schools that you and I might know that are successful, they ended up drawing conclusions that I thought, well, you know, is Finland a good school system because they can fire teachers? Or is it a good school system because they have long hours in Saturday classes or because they have school in summer? No. So how did they draw these particular conclusions? You have to just start off with is to say that he doesn't show a single successful public school. He shows five charter schools and says they're wonderful. And he says very quickly, uh, almost under his breath, only one out of five charter schools gets amazing results. In fact, it's about one out of every six, and they don't get amazing results. Only, and this is the one national study of charter schools was done by an organization at Stanford called Credo, and it found that 17% of charters did better than their matched public school. That doesn't mean getting amazing results. In terms of the percent that get amazing results, it's probably uh, far, far less than that. And as I've looked more closely at some of the schools in the movie that he holds up as great examples, uh, well, of course, one is Jeffrey Canada's school. And when the scores were recalibrated in New York, they just collapsed this past year. Uh, this, the New York State scores were wildly inflated. So Jeffrey Canada's schools are not getting amazing results. One of his charter schools has 40% of the kids proficient. Another one has 50% of the kids proficient. That, those are good results. They're not amazing results. And uh, when he says, when Davis Guggenheim says, resources don't matter, poverty doesn't matter, that's nonsense. Resources do matter. Jeffrey Canada's Harlem Children's Zone, which I admire, has over $200 million in assets. Well, you know, it's easy to say that resources don't matter if you have $200 million. Um, the other example I would uh, point to of, of the five schools that he singles out is the Seed Charter School in Washington, D.C. And I said in my review of the movie that it apparently deserves all the plaudits it gets, but what I didn't realize when I wrote that is that Seed has an astonishing attrition rate. They take in about 150 kids in seventh grade, and their first graduating class out of 150 was about 14 kids. I mean, the attrition rate was 90%, but Davis Guggenheim didn't tell us that. Um, they now have raised their, uh, at least lowered the attrition rate. That They have 34 graduates out of 140 kids admitted this year. So again, if the public school did this, uh, he would call us a failing factory, I guess. So one of the things I really like about, the, about your book uh, is that you're, you're sort of debunking the easy answers. And I sense that that's really part of what you're trying to get to is to say, there, aren't any, there is no royal road here. There are no easy answers. There's some really core important things you do, but we're not going to have just some easy thing pop up that we can say, this is going to be magic. Let's just do this. Well, that's true. I think that uh, I've been studying education now since the late 1960s. Uh, my first book came out 35 years ago. It was a history of the New York City school system. And I, I would have to say that if there's one thing I've learned over these many years and decades is there's no easy answers. If there were easy answers, we would all know them and we'd all be doing them. And anytime someone says that they found it, uh, a closer look shows, no, they haven't found it. You have to educate children one at a time. Uh, you, if you're a public school, you have to take in all the kids who come to your door. And uh, th this is why I'm very concerned about the current trend to create selective charter schools where when kids are very low performing, they find ways to get them out and throw them back into the public schools. Uh, public, I, I believe that charters could play a very positive role if we were free, all of us, public and, and charter schools, from the high-stakes environment. Uh, the high-stakes environment incentivizes everybody to try to avoid low-scoring students. Uh, and the kids who need the help the most are pushed out and pushed away. And I think that's we're distorting in, in American education. Okay, well, let's. Uh, one of the uh, I'm reading. I was reading your book concurrent with reading another book called Mistakes Were Made. Um, I love these books about um, sociology and, and the brain and, and ways that we act. And um, in this book, Mistakes Were Made, it talks about the great difficulty that people have admitting mistakes. And um, then I read your sort of introductory chapter and was uh, impressed 
and appreciative of your willingness to say, you know, I think I've changed my, I have changed my mind. Most definitely. I uh, was, for some years, as, from the time I worked in the Bush administration, the first Bush administration in 91, uh, until, I'd say about three or four years ago, a strong supporter of choice and accountability as strategies for improvement. But as I began to see what was happening in, in response to No Child Left Behind, and in some of the districts, like the district I live in in New York City, where accountability is, is basically the only strategy there is, um, I began to see all the negative consequences and thinking, I, ca I can't support this. And you know, I, I have gotten some negative feedback. Mostly I've gotten very positive feedback, but I've gotten some critics who say, oh, you're not sincere, you didn't mean it, you're just jumping, you know, you're being opportunistic in effect is what they're saying. And I have to laugh because if I were opportunistic, I wouldn't be on this side of the debate, believe me. All the money and all the power is on the other side and I got off the gravy train. So I'm not sure that it's really very opportunistic to leave the gravy train as it's leaving the station. Well, I really appreciated it, and uh, you tell the, the the book is sort of uh, it follows this pattern of you um, decide to repaint your study, and you're looking through years of different papers, and you're kind of looking at the patterns that you've seen, and sort of trying to I think in many ways kind of catalog how you got to th the thoughts that you did, and and how things were changing. I was reminded of Paul Peterson's book. Um, Saving Schools, where he talks about the personal life of the reformers, uh, which, which uh, for me was very helpful. And then Carol Dweck, you know, she talks about her own life experiences um, uh, related to her book, and Jennifer Fox, whom we just heard from, also sort of personal stories that drove philosophies. I really appreciated your kind of being upfront about the, those particular personal motivations. I don't want to go through all of the book because um, we, we can recommend it for reading, but I also don't think it's fair to you to have to repeat everything from it. Um, but um, you, can you give sort of a quick synopsis of what you think the larger lessons uh, in the book are? Well, I think that uh, it's hard to summarize it in a few sentences, but let me give it, a, give it a try. I think that the movement towards high stakes testing and accountability has had very perverse consequences. Uh, we, I have seen, and I'm sure everyone on this chat has seen, or almost everyone, has seen examples where school districts have eliminated or severely cut back on the arts and science and history and literature and geography and civics and foreign languages and physical education and health instruction and uh, even recess. And that's not good education. Now, I've um, in my in my lifetime as a scholar, I have at various times criticized different things that Dewey has said or written. But one of his lines that I love is it's from School and Society, uh, a book that he wrote uh, over 100 years ago, where he says, "What the best and wisest parent wants for his child is what we should want for all of the children of the community." And that's something that I deeply believe in. And what we're providing now is not good education. It's uh, by, there's so much focus on the tests, and it has many, many negative consequences. Aside from narrowing the curriculum, we've also seen a tremendous upsurge in cheating. The more you put sanctions, uh, punishments, and rewards, merit pay, bonuses, the more you attach those things to the test, the less the test scores mean because people will cheat, uh, people will game the system, state education departments will game the system. This is what happened. Uh, just this past uh, year in New York State was the state owned up to the fact that the test scores were wildly inflated. Well, it, it served New York's purpose well enough because New York won race to the top money based on the scores from 2009, which we now know were fraudulent scores. Uh, but the same thing is, I've read stories recently about Illinois where the, they, they've been dropping the cut scores so that more and more kids are declared proficient when they're not. Uh, it, this has become like a massive fraud against children, uh, this era of high-stakes testing. So I'm going to do everything I can say and do to uh, uh, just try to bring it to the public's attention, although the public seems to get it. It's the policymakers that don't get it. It's the U.S. Department of Education that, that doesn't get it. And so now they're taking the high-stakes testing into value-added assessment of teachers, where names will be published associated with student test scores on, on tests that are not intended for this purpose and where uh, the, the, uh, these evaluated list of teachers, they're highly uh, uh, inaccurate, they're highly unstable, 
And yet these very flawed measures will be used to determine bonuses uh, and punishments and people will be fired. It is ridiculous. This is part of this whole large disgusting scene in American education today where uh, people pushed by, I'm, I'm kind of laughing to myself that Microsoft is supporting this session. Bill Gates has been a destructive influence in American education, forgive me for saying so, but he has pushed this, first of all he's pushed the um, uh, the agenda of, he started with small schools, and I think small schools are fine. Small school, you know, any school that works is a good school. If it's small, large, I don't care. But he pushed the agenda of uh, evaluating teachers. Uh, he's worked hand in glove with Arnie Duncan, and Arnie Duncan is just doing so many things that are wrong. And now the, the big agenda for Gates and for Broad and for the other big foundations is privatization. So this does not lead us in a direction that's good for our democracy and it's not good for children, and it's not good for teachers. I mean, what's to like about it? Uh, it it's uh, really a, a terrible situation, and I can't tell you. I try to post letters on my website um, as I get them. Some people say they don't want their letters put up, and I don't. But I have gotten hundreds of letters from teachers and parents saying, what is going wrong in this country? Why are they, why are they ruining my child's life? Why do, we, why, does my, why do I send my child every day for test prep? That's not good education. And, you know, it's just very, very discouraging. And when, when people elected Obama, educators worked probably as hard for him as any group in the country, and now they find that they're the targets and that he's proving himself by uh, disrespecting the unions and disrespecting the teachers. And uh, that's not good for education. It's, it's, there's a kind of insanity that's loose in the country. Well, and, and you go through the book, and, and I don't have enough background here. Some of these examples that you give in the book I wasn't actually familiar with. But it seems as though you go through several of the sort of prominent reform efforts that people would know of, and you drill down to show what actually took place. And what you're trying to show is you know, we may have a, we may want to whitewash or have an easy perception that something worked, but if you really look at it, here's what really took place. Has anybody come back to you and said, "I still don't think you got it about their particular transformation"? Not quite to the contrary. I I've heard from many people, for example, in San Diego, who said, "I was there. Uh, you really nailed it." Uh, one guy was in charge of assessment, and he said, "Yeah, that was right. You were." You were right on. Uh, I've heard from many teachers and, and uh, uh, administrators and parents in San Diego uh, saying that that was an accurate description of what happened in the district. I'm sure that the particular individuals that I described were not thrilled with the depiction because I, I think the point of the San Diego chapter is you can't reform education by punishing teachers. You can't reform education by telling teachers, I know the answer. I've never taught, I'm not an educator, but I've got all the answers and you do it my way or you're out of here. I mean, that's insane. And that's what's been happening in New York these past several years and it happened in San Diego and it just doesn't work. Um, I think that, you know, as we look for answers, the answers turn out not to be very simple, but they're basic. Basic answers being you recruit the best teachers that you can, you give them the, mo the most support and mentorship that you can. Uh, at some point, their supervisors make a judgment about whether they're going to make it or not. And many teachers leave, many teachers fire themselves, they go. As I said earlier, 50% of those who enter teaching are gone within five years. Uh, you won't learn that in Superman. What you'll learn in Superman is he'll say only one out of 2,500 teachers gets decertified uh, compared to one out of 57 lawyers or doctors. But he doesn't mention that 50% of the teachers are gone. Uh, within five years. So, but I think that the um, the bottom line is look at what the successful countries have done. They've built over time a strong teaching core, uh, a strong professional group of supervisors who are experienced educators, and we're going completely in the opposite direction. We have our policymakers applauding uh, the idea that you can train a principal who's never been a teacher, and that these guys will men and women will come in as data mongers. Uh, they will be sports figures, they will be business, retired businessmen or, or failures in business or ex-lawyers, whatever they are. It doesn't matter. Anybody can teach, anybody can be a, uh, a, a principal, anybody can be a superintendent. I mean, this is taking us back to the uh, early 19th century when there was no such thing as the education profession. So regular listeners are going to know that I've brought this up on several occasions. And you're, you're very careful in the book to make it clear that really, you know, we can't 
uh, it's not appropriate to bring lessons from the business world necessarily into education. But I'm going to do a little twist on that, and I'm anxious to see how you respond. One of my personal heroes is a man named W. Edwards Deming, who was um, sort of behind the resurgence of, the, of Japan after World War II. And I'm going to read this quote, and then I'm going to see if you feel like it's applicable at all. Uh, Deming taught that most of the problems we encounter, perhaps 90%, are the result of multiple influences. They generally cannot be attributed to a single cause. Assigning blame for a problem to the last person involved is worse than counterproductive. It will probably make a bad situation worse. Exhorting people to be careful, try harder, and work smarter is not useful if individuals have little effect on the results. Rewarding or punishing people for outcomes that are not under their control can only result in discouragement or in gaming the system. Instead, chronic problems must be fixed by finding their underlying causes and addressing these effectively. As Deming points out, this usually involves changing the system the way things are done. And according to Deming, it's management's job to change the system. So does that ring a bell at all? Does that resonate with what we're seeing in education? Very happy that you quoted Deming because uh, I quote Deming frequently uh, when I speak. I came across a book uh, called The Man Who Discovered Quality, and it's a book about Deming, which I highly recommend by a woman named Andrea Gabor, who teaches at Brew College in New York City, and she teaches in the College of Business Administration. Uh, and uh, what Deming says, and it's in Chapter 9, and I've underlined lots of phrases from there. I frequently quote him when I'm out lecturing. Uh, he says that it's management's moral obligation. Most people want joy in their work. That's, they go to work not wanting to be miserable. They want to find joy in their work. And management has a moral obligation to create a system in which it's capable of finding joy in, uh, in which it's possible for them to find joy in their work. Uh, he speaks about um, you know, the, the idea that the auto manufacturers were blaming their workers for their failure to plan uh, and, and, and create a, a machine that would be competitive in the world, uh, that was ridiculous. Uh, and Deming is very much opposed to anything that we would consider merit pay because he says that it creates uh, an incentive for short-term thinking and no incentive for long-term planning, and it demoralizes the organization. And teachers get this. They get it because they understand that a, a school with a good, strong culture is a collaborative culture. And this is where the lessons of business don't work very well in education, and although you know, Deming would be somebody who is exceptional because he gets this. He understands that, that teamwork is first, collaboration is first, and you can't have teachers who are teaching the same children in competition with one another for dollars. Uh, and so I think that Deming is absolutely appropriate, and I would uh, recommend, again, this book because it makes Deming so accessible, uh, The Man Who Discovered Quality. Okay, so I have goosebumps right now. If those who have been listening for the last few weeks have known I keep bringing Deming up, but I felt like oh, maybe I need to just stop uh, flagging this particular horse. And to have you actually not only uh, like the quote, but to know that you are actually quoting him as well is uh, personally thrilling for me and will give me lots of fun things to think about tonight. Are there just inherent difficulties with measuring um, you know, we, we think about the IQ test and what it was created for and how it's actually used. We think about business and the economic collapse and, and daily looking at the stock market, which tells us nothing about the shape of our economy. How do we do measurement in a, in a productive way? Well, I think that's a conversation where I, I would want to be engaged with lots of people in the classroom because I I can, I can see all the flaws of what we're doing now. What we're doing now is to uh, look only at reading scores and math scores. So since they're the only things that count, it, it encourages people to um, not to teach other things because they don't count. Uh, and it also leads to uh, teaching to the test. This is one of the reasons that the New York State tests were so deeply flawed was because the test became so predictable that if you just read last year's test and the year before, you could literally teach the questions and kids would be prepared. But you know, there have been many studies that have showed that teaching to the test, actually I was thinking of Dan Koretz's work, and if anyone wants to learn about uh, the sort of ins and outs of what's wrong with standardized testing, I recommend his book, Measuring Up. Uh, it's K-O-R-E-T-Z. Uh, but Dan Koretz says that he's found uh, time and again that when kids are doing well on a, a series of tests, if you suddenly switch the test that they weren't prepped for, they don't do well at all because they were all they were learning was test prep and not the actual 
They weren't learning reading or writing or math. They were just learning how to prepare for a particular test. So I think we, we have a very big problem in this country. We have accountability measures that distort education. And uh, I, I kind of like the, the, the Finnish approach, which is they really don't put much emphasis on testing at all. They have something like our NAEP, which is a sampling of schools across the country. They don't do much testing of individual students until they're ready to go to college. Uh, they uh, rely on getting really, really terrific people into teaching, uh, getting them to be the best they can be. Giving, they have a national curriculum that's quite wonderful. And, you know, the arts and science and all of those other good things are included. Uh, but testing is not a big part of their approach to, uh, to education. Uh, their approach is a very holistic one. And uh, it does require that you, uh, uh, you, know, you believe in teachers and you get the best people you can and have a national curriculum so that everybody's more, they're not teaching from a script. They're given lots of autonomy. Uh, and honestly, I, I, I'm not the person to design an accountability system, but I can tell you that what we're doing now is uh, dumbing our whole country down. I don't expect we're going to look very good on the next science assessment because science is one of those subjects that's falling by the wayside in addition to the arts. So you used the phrase dumbing us down. And I did interview John Taylor Gallo this year. Uh, and there's a paragraph in the book in which you kind of describe those who see a conspiracy behind the educational system. And I think he falls into that area. D do, have you read his material? And do you have a response to the kinds of things he's talked about? You know, I haven't read uh, John Taylor's work recently. I, I read it years ago, and uh, I know that he's a very outspoken voice and very uh, libertarian. And I fundamentally, I mean, I guess I've never believed in conspiracy theories. Uh, I know that uh, there are many people today who feel that No Child Left Behind was a conspiracy from the start and that the people who designed it always planned that it would destroy public education. And certainly one can look back now and say that this idea of having 2014 as the date by which 100% of all children will be proficient. I think the phrase I use in my book is, it's a timetable for the destruction of American public education because very few schools will meet that benchmark, at least not by any legitimate means. Um, but I don't think that the people who passed it, the 90% of the Congress, uh, more Democrats than Republicans, uh, Ted Kennedy included, I don't think they saw that. Uh, I think what I've learned about Congress, both from my own experience when I was working in the first Bush administration and my recent interviews with people in the House and the Senate is not very many people pay attention to education. So when the No Child Left Behind legislation was written, it was over a thousand pages. And uh, I doubt that there were very many congressmen who had any idea uh, of the sanctions, the remedies, and, and how there was so little in the law, including the law itself, that was based on either research or practice. So you use the phrases in the book uh, about yourself, thinking like a policymaker, seeing like a state. You know, what lessons are there for us then about policy if at that national level it's really hard to uh, see problems for the complexity and the nuance? What, what, what do we end up then doing nationally? Well, I think there's so many things that the federal government should be emphasizing. Um, First of all, I would like to see uh, much more uh, have the federal government uh, pay for what it mandates. That would be a good start. Uh, it mandates special education, which is appropriate, but it doesn't pay for it. I think that the last time I looked, it was paying for about 10 or 12 or most 15% of the cost. I don't think it's up to 15%. Uh, but this would be a huge fiscal relief for every school district in the country if the federal government simply paid for what it mandates. That would be a start. I think that it, the civil rights agenda is very important, but what Arnie Duncan and his associates call the civil rights agenda of our time is not what they're doing. Uh, the, the best critique I've seen of the, um, of the Obama administration's approach was the framework written by the civil rights groups, which was published this past summer, in which they said if, if education is a civil rights agenda, civil rights pertain to individuals and not to states. And what the, this administration is doing is making federal funding a matter of competition, where 11 states in the District of Columbia won money, uh, but that means that all the children who are in need in the other 39 states get nothing. 
Uh, and, you know, I, frankly, I congratulate every state that didn't win Race to the Top because I think it's a terrible program and every part of it is, is non, not based on research or practice or evidence. Uh, but the, fund, the principle behind Race to the Top is if you want federal funding, you compete for it. So if you get some foundation to underwrite your consultant fees, maybe you'll have a better application. This really reverses 45 years of federal policy. Federal policy in 1965, when the Elementary and Secondary Education Act was adopted, was premised on the belief that federal funding should go to children in need. And where, wherever there were children in need, which was virtually every district in this country, uh, that's where the funding would go. And so there was a formula tied to how many children were poor and disadvantaged. And what Race at the Top does is to throw the formula approach out and say we can waive this 4.3 billion before the states and get states to change their laws to do the things they wouldn't do on their own. Uh, we have today this bizarre situation where the federal government is really running education policy across the country. This was never intended. It certainly was not the intention in 1965. And there's been no point at which Congress has said well, we're now going to have a federal uh, control of education policy. But in effect, that's what's happened. And you can see it happening all around the country because of No Child Left Behind. And now uh, with the additional strength added to it uh, of the race to the top and all those billions of dollars which everyone was longing to get. So tell us about Mrs. Ratliff. Well, I have a, a chapter in which I was trying, this was a hard chapter to write because I wanted to write about the research on the influence of teachers, which I believe is huge. And, and, and there's lots and lots of data that show the teachers are the single most important element within the school affecting student performance. But I wanted to, uh, I tried to figure out some way to humanize the chapter. And I thought of Mrs. Ratliff because she was my favorite high school teacher and my favorite teacher of all time, really, because she was so inspiring. And she was so tough and so gruff. And, and she taught literature. And I longed to be in her class because, uh, because she was a wonderful teacher. And she just was uh, very demanding. But for some reason, uh, everybody wanted to be in her class as tough and demanding as she was. And I was really, in a, in a way, uh, using her as a paradigm to say, uh, how would she fare in the age of data-driven instruction? And I think Mrs. Ratliff wouldn't have stood for it for a minute. I mean, she was a woman who cared deeply about education, she, who looked into the mind and soul of her students and tried to get them to love what she loved. Uh, and she shared her passion for literature with us, her students. Uh, but frankly, she looked on us as a group of barbarians who needed civilizing. And I think she, you know, she was right. Um, but I wanted to show that uh, had she lived in this age that we're in, uh, who knows what her test scores would have been. Maybe they wouldn't have been very good because we spent an awful lot of time reading and thinking about um, literature and not preparing for tests. But that's a change in our, in our whole approach to education. And I think we're, 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 going, we're going backwards. We're going backwards to an age where um, you, you might almost say that the soul of education is being crushed. Uh, she would have been very unhappy to live in this age. So I found the last chapter in the book the personally the most frustrating. Uh, you you uh, you know you pretty much uh, describe uh, the lessons learned, and I left really wanting some kind of practical things that I could do either in my own community or within my sphere of influence. Um, is is my desire for that kind of concreteness again? just symbolic of the desire to have some simple answer? Or do you have in mind uh, you know, that at some point you could write some more sort of practical uh, advice for someone like me who says, I want to make a difference, but I don't quite know how? Good question, Steve. And it's a question that I've had to confront again and again. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been out lecturing. I've probably spoken to, I don't know, maybe 60 audiences from different parts of the country. And I know that at the end, somebody will say, what can I do? And so I have to prepare for this question. And now I prepare for it by saying, please don't ask me what you can do, because I'm very frustrated. I'm very frustrated because normally, if you don't like the party in power, what they're doing, you turn to the other party. But in this case, we have a bipartisan agreement around bad policies. Uh, so that it makes it very hard. And I guess what I'm looking for now are individuals who, you know, maybe they'll be the leader. Because I think we need leadership. We need people who will speak up. Uh, we need people who will uh, 
point the way to a better definition of education, who will have some sense about the wholeness of children and the, the fact that we don't really want to have an education system that just ranks and divides kids up and says, you're the winners, you're the losers, and too bad for you. Um, I mean, I think if you know kids who are not very good test takers, you think, gosh, they're condemned to a life as a loser and the society that we're now building. And this is so wrong because test taking is not the only definition of what makes for a successful life. Um, so I'm looking for people like, uh, there's a wonderful congresswoman from California named Judy Chu who is a light in, in the Congress and she really gets it. She's an educator and she's been struggling against the tide. Uh, there's a guy running for state superintendent of instruction in California, Tom Torlakson. I, I met with him, and I think he could be a national leader. We need national leaders because we certainly don't have them in the U.S. Department of Education. We don't have one in the White House because, uh, you know, when the, when the president cheered the firing of all those teachers at Central Falls High School, none of whom had ever gotten an evaluation, I thought that was so wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, we see this going on in, now in communities across the country where public schools are being closed down because their scores were not high enough and there's so little effort to find out why were the scores low, what can we do to help. So what can you do as a citizen? Contact your congressman, contact your, contact your senator, write letters to the editor, uh, do whatever you can to uh, preserve some public space. What I find among many other things that are so disturbing these days is everything seems to be for sale. We Public libraries being privatized, public hospitals being privatized, uh, a friend from uh, Cal State wrote me the other day and he said soon they'll figure out how to how to uh, buy the air we breathe in Texas every time we take a breath. I mean, I, I find this uh, attack on the public sector to be very, very dangerous to our society. So I want to defend public education, but I don't want to just defend it. I want to make it much, much better. And the way we make it better is to begin to talk about the right things, uh, improving teacher preparation, teacher education, teacher evaluation, certainly, but, but better administrators, better principals. And, um, you know, when, when the George W. Bush Institute announced a couple of weeks ago that it plans to uh, train 50,000 principals and replace half the principals in America and recruit non-educators, I thought, oh, good grief. Uh, how will these non-educators know how to evaluate teachers? How will they go into a classroom and know that uh, Mr. Jones or Ms. Smith needs help and what help will they be able to provide? Uh, I, I think we have to learn from other countries. So this will be interesting, a little bit of an exercise. I'm curious from the audience and from you. After the elevated ed discussion that we had, Ilana and Betty Ray and Betsy Aoki from Microsoft and I uh, had a phone conference. And one of the ideas that we had for making a difference was to actually hold events in local communities where we brought people together who had been successful for the right reasons and had them speak for half a day and just say, we're going to bring people in who, who know what education is really all about and just kind of have a conversation around what really works in education and then give the people locally there a chance to meet together. Would that kind of a program, do you think, make a difference? And if so, is that an idea that you would have thoughts about? That's a very lovely idea. I think what we really need to find, and, and they exist out there, are, are school uh, leaders, I'm thinking now of superintendents, who have the ability to be leaders and to inspire their followers. Uh, I recently blogged and I, I quoted uh, Vince Lombardi uh, who said that to be a great leader you have to be able to inspire people. You have to have your followers uh, wanting to follow. And instead, we have now at the top in many cities uh, leaders who just complain all the time about their teachers. Uh, and many of these leaders have never been teachers, and so uh, I don't think they have any credentials for the complaining. But I, I think what I'd like to see, and, and I don't know how to make it happen, is uh, more time and attention to the superintendents who admire their teachers, support their teachers, look for ways to make them better, uh, give them the heart and the morale and the courage to, uh, to, to go in and teach another day and to feel good about themselves. Um, I should mention that I was, uh, I was recently in the doctor's office and picked up a magazine called Inc, I-N-C, and it was about the 50 best small businesses in America, and so I wanted to know what their secrets were, so I flipped through and every one of them said the same thing. They all said, we try to um, make our employees feel appreciated. We try to make them feel valued and respected. We give them the best possible working conditions, and we pamper them. 
And I thought, gosh, that's not what happens in education. Instead, we're, we just hear a lot of complaining about teachers and how awful they are. And I think we need to, uh, maybe that's something we could learn from business, is how to make our those who work in the field uh, feel the respect that the community owes them for the hard work that they do. I wish I could say that I thought that the ideas of those top 50 ink companies are actually the pervasive philosophy of business as a whole. But my guess is that we're actually seeing in both uh, areas uh, sort of similar patterns, which is a small percentage who do that who get it and like Dan Pink profiles, but, but a much larger group who still manage based on um, really um, in, in ways that actually produce the opposite of what they would like, except that you know, the, there's sort of this human nature issue. Well, we've reached the point for Q&A, and, and I know people are going to be dying to ask you questions. So here's how this works. If you have a question for Diane that you'd like to ask using the microphone, click on the larger icon at the bottom of your participant window that's the hand with the green up arrow. Uh, if you want to, you can put a question in the chat. I've captured two, but I haven't done a very good job. I've been it's hard to watch all of that, Chad. Um, but this one I thought was kind of intriguing, and it came early on. And it was uh, one question I still struggle to answer. How do we hold parents accountable? Truly, we need their help to get kids interested in learning and buying education. It's tough enough without that battle. Do you want to talk a little bit about parents and families? One thing that the research shows, I think this is true of all the research that's been done by the economists, whether it's Eric Hanyashek at the Hoover Institution on the right, or Richard Rothstein at the Economic Policy Institute on the left, everybody understands that parents and families are the most important influence on student performance. They affect whether kids come to school at all. They affect student attitudes towards learning. And, uh, you know, a lot of families are struggling. We have a tremendous uh, recession going on right now. And so, uh, you know, how do we hold them accountable? I think we could probably do much more in terms of parent education. Uh, but the schools can't do it all. They can't be parents for the kids. And the parents have to do their part. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure that everybody who's a teacher on this list will talk about parent-teacher conferences where uh, not many parents showed up. I've heard this particularly in, in urban districts where they uh, few parents will turn out. And I think the, they're, they're the missing ingredient in most cases because what the economists agree on is that parent and student influence on test scores accounts for about 60% of the variation. That's huge. That's way, way bigger than the influence of the teachers. Well, one of the most interesting interviews I've done recently was with uh, Denise Walk and Joseph Martino, DiMartino about the personalized high school. And they introduced for me a concept I didn't know of, which was the advisory. And it seemed like this uh, working with the student and really developing a plan with an educator who meets with them daily or a group of students daily or regularly um, seemed to have this sort of secondary benefit of involving the parents in a very positive way. Are there programs that, rather than being punitive, seem to invite parents in? You know, I'm sure there are. I came across some when I was, uh, many years ago, when I was working in the U.S. Department of Education, uh, where it was parents as partners or something like that, or parents as teachers. Um, I think there's a lot that schools can do to try to invite parents in. San Diego right now is doing something very interesting. San Diego is taking a whole new approach to school reform, having gone through the, the top-down model. They now have something they call community-based school reform and where teachers and administrators are bringing in parents and community leaders and saying in every school, what are our goals? What, what's our vision for the school? What do we want to fix? Let's work together. And this is very much a, a bottom-up approach to school reform. I think that's very exciting. And I think uh, you know, their agenda is there, it's the teachers, it's the union, it's the district leadership, and it's the, the school board all working in partnership uh, to create this idea that in every school there will be this uh, bottom-up approach to school reform. I, th I think that's very interesting and promising. So Mayan has her hand up. I'm going to give her the microphone. Uh, to turn your microphone on, Mayan, you click. There you go. There you go. 
Yes, hi. Uh, yeah, my name is Mei Yan Lu. I'm from San Jose State University in the Department of Educational uh, you know, Leadership. We prepare future school in, in school uh, you know, leaders. So I would like to take this I guess, opportunity to our I guess speaker. Could you I guess share with us what can we do in I guess preparing I guess future school leaders? Thank you. I would think that uh, you should immerse them in the, in, uh, the importance of building a strong culture. Uh, you should teach them about uh, interpersonal relationships where they're able to deal with the uh, teachers with respect and treat them as professionals and not uh, act as though they've gotten the job to be the boss and to boss people around. I think that's uh, one of the things that I've seen that uh, is, is an important part of leadership no matter what field you're in getting your troops to follow you eagerly and willingly and shaping goals together. That, that would be an important part of, of leadership is, uh, you know, being a leader is not giving orders but learning how to get the best out of everyone who works in your care. So I've given the microphone to Connie Weber. And Connie, you lowered your hand, but I think you meant to click on the larger microphone button at the lower left. Uh, is that good? We can hear you. Okay. Hi, Diane. Thank you very much for being here. And I wanted to say you've been a big influence in my life and many, many people. Thank you so much for all your history, especially the great school wars and the books coming from way back. Love those books. And Left Back. Thank you for writing that book. It puts so much in perspective. Um, I wanted to get away from the politics and the uh, um, policy and the um, shouting matches and everything else and ask you about vision. What would you see, making it very personal, maybe about your grandchild or somebody very close to you, what would you most like to see happening in the schools? What, how would it look to you? How would a, a really good day in class or day in school look? That's a wonderful question. I have. Uh some older grandchildren who are teens now, and they hate school. Uh, they have gotten so much homework and so much testing, and uh, they, they really don't like school. And it's very sad for me, because obviously this is something I'm very passionate about. And um, my youngest grandchild is now four years old, and he's going to be starting. He's in preschool, but he'll be starting regular kindergarten next year. And I have a lot of trepidation about it, because I see him going into a school environment where kindergarten has, is no longer a place for play and learning through play and learning through experience, but it's a time to prepare for the test that will begin in earnest in the next year, maybe even in kindergarten. Um, so I, what I would wish for him is that he might have a school experience where obviously he would learn to read and write and do math, but where he would be able to take field trips and, and do projects and activities and I'm, I'm uh, sounding very, very progressive in my old age. Um, but I, I would like to see him love learning. I would like to see him um, engage in, in uh, you know, deep study of the things that excite him. And there has to be time for the, for the deep study. I think right now with the focus on test prep, all of that gets lost. And I would love to see him in, uh, in a school, and he will be going to a wonderful school in, in Brooklyn. Uh, where the principal tries to keep the test prep in check and understands that the arts are very, just as important as the, as the reading and math. So I'm, I'm hopeful for him, but at the same time I'm very worried because I don't see any of the invidious trends that I've been very, become very skeptical of uh, abating. And I fear that uh, with the new focus on judging teachers by test scores, uh, the test prep is just going to get worse and worse. But that's getting away from your question, which is what would I like? I would like him to be in a school where he loves to go to school every day. Thanks, Connie. Sylvia, I'm giving you the microphone. Thanks, Steve. Um, Diane, I just wanted to say keep up the fight. It's uh, amazing to have a voice like yours out there speaking for everybody. Um, and my question is sort of back to the, the uh, teacher um, evaluation and accountability. And I, I think everyone knows that unions in the United States, it's not just teachers' unions who are under attack, but unions have sort of become a code word for lazy slackers who demand huge contracts and, you know, 
incredible golden retirement funds and don't really care about the work they're doing. Um, and I'm not sure this is, can be rehabilitated. So I'm wondering if you've seen examples of good practices in schools where teachers can be treated fairly. There's, there's, um, you know, due process. They can't be fired on whims of, of administrators. That administrators are held accountable to, um, you know, do teacher evaluation fairly, without resorting to high stake tests. Um, you know, and, and any words you have, any thoughts of how we sort out this sort of anti-union, um, as if that's the only way that that teachers can be uh, have have a you know a group say in in how they teach and and in in that profession. What's happening right now is that there is a big push coming from Arnie Duncan, from uh, Michelle Reed, Joel Klein, and people in that group. Uh, who would like to be able to hire and fire teachers at will? Uh, they would like to eliminate seniority and tenure uh, and due process <clears throat> and simply uh, hire and fire the people they want to hire and fire. Um, I, I, I don't see this as a step forward because I, I, know, I remember why unions were created. They were created because there was so much arbitrariness in terms of uh, hiring and firing people. And very often people were fired because of their race or their religion or their sexual orientation or uh, some other invidious reason that had nothing to do with their quality as teaching, maybe because they had a different philosophy from their principal and the principal just didn't like them. Um, you have to bear in mind that in every, every union contract is agreed to by two parties, uh, by the union and by the management. And if management doesn't like the contract, it shouldn't sign it. It should be as tough as the union is and negotiate a fair contract. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is that our highest scoring state is Massachusetts. I mean, Massachusetts, if you look at the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, is way out front of the rest of the nation in, in reading and in math and in fourth grade and in eighth grade. And yet if you read the Massachusetts newspapers, you don't see any stories saying, uh, gee, let's thank our teachers for a job well done. It's the same complaining uh, going on there and in the Boston Globe as if uh, Massachusetts were a, a backward state. Massachusetts is 100% unionized, and, and being union has not prevented it from being number one in the country. Uh, Finland, which is held up and waiting for Superman as the exemplary nation, is 95% unionized. So. The union itself is not an impediment. What, what the union fights for is due process. And if administrators think they have too much due process, then they should go to the negotiating table and say, let's expedite the process. I mean, it's, it's up to the administration to assign hearing officers and see that people get a fair hearing. One of the objectionable things in the Waiting for Superman movie is they show teachers sitting in the rubber rooms in New York City, where some of them have been for two years accused of misconduct or incompetence, and they never had a hearing. Uh, but they're presumed guilty uh, without, a, without any kind of a hearing. It's up to the administration to give them a hearing. So unions should not, are not an impediment to, um, to good practice. Uh, they're there to make sure that teachers get a fair shake. And if the administration doesn't like the contract it signs, it, it should negotiate a different contract. Um, Martin, we're going to let you ask a question. And then if we've got time, uh, Mayanne again. Just a quick, well, quick question. Again, thank you very much. This is very enlightening. With the um, with our current, <laughs> the UFT has a charter school. How do you feel about a union starting a charter school to show how we can improve our education? We, and my concern is the union that supports the teachers in the public schools are seem to be competing with the public schools now. Uh, what is your take on that? Uh, let me just say I was responding to this claim that LA hasn't fired any teachers. I had lunch with the superintendent in, uh, in LA when I was there a couple of weeks ago, and he told me that um, he hasn't sought any headlines, but he has quietly laid off over a thousand teachers uh, because of budget constraints, and he did it in collaboration with the union, and it was done. And he didn't call the press in to say, look, look, look at all the people I'm firing. He did it regretfully, and, but he did it. Uh, as to the union running charter schools, I think it's a stupid idea. Uh, that's not their role. Their role is, the role of the union is to make sure that uh, teachers have representation, to make sure that they have a voice, uh, to, to be their advocate, and to protect due process rights. 
and its administration's roles uh, in terms of the contract to negotiate with the union. Uh, but I don't understand why the union should run charter schools because 95% of the, at least 95% of the charter schools in, in the United States today are non-union schools. So I guess what the union is proving is that they too can run a charter school, but what's the point? Um, the overwhelming majority of charter organizers don't want a union and will not have a union, and uh, they're in effect saying uh, we can do the same thing that people who hate unions can do, but so what? So Diane, it's 9 o'clock your time, and I'm going to clap to thank for you. We try and end on time as a courtesy to you. Mayanne, thanks for having a good question before, and I'm sorry we're not getting to your last one, but Diane, thanks so much for coming on. Thank, thank you, Steve. It's really been great talking to you. You ask terrific questions, and you get right to the heart of the matter, and it's been lots of fun, and I appreciate uh, all the people who participated. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. We really appreciate it. Thanks to our sponsors, including the irony of Microsoft as a sponsor, but they, they have been very good in terms of um, helping me, and I appreciate that. Coming up uh, Thursday, Clarence Fisher, and then next week, Vicki Abeles and Stephen Farr. Thanks to you for attending tonight. Thanks to Diane for uh, the book, or the body of work in her life, and for being willing to rethink and be public about it. Hope everybody has a great night. Take care.